Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. What are the myths of American history? But we'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You already heard about that. You can also click on that super thanks button if you're watching on YouTube. If you go to brianmcclanahan.com, click on the support tab, or you can go to Spotify for podcasters. All those are great ways to throw a few pennies my way and keep the show free of charge. You can also go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, where I teach with Tom and a whole bunch of other people. And you can click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com, buy my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review wherever you can. Leave a text review wherever you can. And comment on YouTube for the algorithm. Okay, well, let's talk about this idea of American myths. Now, at McClanahanAcademy.com, I give you a free class when you sign up. Ten Myths of American History. So this idea of myths in American history isn't new. In fact... Uh, we could say that that's really the core of what history is. It's the study, the understanding of the past. And in that understanding of the past, you're going to have the biases of the historian themselves come out. Now, what seems to have happened in the last, say, 50 years is that we've changed the way we think about myths. Those things that have been considered standard interpretations of American history have now become myths. Well, what's changed in that? What's changed in the standard interpretation of American history that had dominated the profession really since, in many ways, you know, the turn of the 20th century? And some things have, you know, there's ebb and flows in history, but all of this comes down to one particular point. History in the profession is interpretation. There's not really any new information out there about, say, the war, for example. The Civil War, the War for Southern Independence, the War Between the States, whatever term you want to use. We don't have any new information on that. There's nothing new that's come out that anybody can go out and find. All that's happened is that we have a bunch of historians with a political axe to grind that want to go out and say, well, your interpretation is the lost cause, and therefore it's old and outdated and it's wrong. My interpretation, which is the righteous cause, is new and fashionable and trendy, and it's based on reality. The problem with this is that, of course, that particular lost cause versus righteous cause was essentially the core debates of the 1850s. 
All that these people do that saying we have this new interpretation of American history are going out and reading Charles Sumner and Thad Stevens and saying that's the proper interpretation of American history. Those people were right. And these Southerners like Jefferson Davis and Alexander Stevens or take your pick of any Southerner in the antebellum period, John C. Calhoun, those people were wrong. That would be what's happened with that particular area of American history. So we have people relying on the Republican Party as opposed to the Democratic Party in the, in the antebellum period or immediately after the war and interpreting what the war was about, why the war was fought, why the war came, etc., etc. That's what's happened. That's the only thing that's happened. And somehow these people were right and these people were wrong. And then, of course, you get the impression that anyone that believes what Southerners said after the war, they were all just lying because they understood they had to lie to make their position look better. The, the, the uh, direct refutation of that is that if you look at what Jefferson Davis was saying, for example, before the war and what he was saying right after the war, it was the same thing. So if you, if you just simply take these things in a vacuum after the war and you don't look at what these people said before the war, well, that would seem to be the case, but there's a cogency in the two. And I find that fascinating that these historians are this dishonest at times. And I think that's, that's really the issue. Many of them don't know anything. And I mean that. They don't really know anything outside their little box that they study in. And they don't go beyond that. It's very hard for them to do that. Or they've simply gone to school and in graduate school and you get you know, a sprinkling of uh, historiography in an area. And then you think you are an expert in that subject. And so therefore... Um, you uh, you can opine on anything under the sun. Now, I mean, you could say, well, McClanahan, don't you do that? I usually try to stay in my lane. But um, the fact is we have a bunch of left-wing historians who are upset that their position on history, they think, is not the dominant view of American history. This is the funniest thing about all of it. These people are the dominant. These people are the establishment. They do run the history departments across the United States at every major university, at every major college. They are the dominant. They are the establishment. They are the people that determine who's hired, who's fired, who's there, who's get tenure, who gets tenure, who doesn't. Oftentimes, they sit on boards of historical journals. They are the peers that review books that go through the academic presses. They control the narrative. Their problem is that there's an entire other industry out there of popular historians that don't necessarily subscribe to their stupidity, and they can't stand it. So therefore, they have to try to eliminate those people. You see, this is something when, when um, people attack me, that's one of the things they do. Well, you've never published on an academic press. Why would I want to? Why would I want to publish with these incestuous nincompoops? That's a real question. Why would you want to subject yourself to that? So that I can get a book published that sells like five copies and who cares? When I can do this and publish popular histories and reach more people. So that's the real question about um, you know, academic presses versus uh, you know, non-academic presses. And so what we've seen, particularly with Trump, and this is Trump derangement syndrome, right? I mean, these people really suffer from this. They, they believe there's this boogeyman out there. And a colleague of mine talk about this sometimes. We laugh about it. That somehow, Southerners have these massive, and this is, this is his statement, Southerners have this massive brainwave power, right? They've got this power that they can, 
they can force people to think their way. And that after the war was over, everyone believed what they were saying. And everyone, they forced the war, they forced their view of the war on everyone else. Well, if that was the case, why didn't they do it before the war? I mean, that they have this kind of power. This is just complete bunk. The position, the lost cause position, was never the dominant position of American history. You did have people like Douglas Southall Freeman, who won awards for his biography of Robert E. Lee. But again, I think most people, particularly on the left, have never actually read that book. In fact, I know they haven't. I know that most people on the left have never really read John C. Calhoun. Some have, but most haven't. They read books about John C. Calhoun by people that they like, like Matthew Carp or something, and they think, well, this is it. This is this this solves the John C. Calhoun problem. They don't they don't actually go out and read the primary documents. They read a whole bunch of secondary material, and then they don't actually go out and get to the documents. Because if they did, their entire perspective on these things would often change. Now, what they do is accuse the other side of not doing that. Or if you have, you know, Charles Dew writing his Apostles of Disunion. Well, I went out, I believed all this stuff. I never actually read the documents. So then I did, and then I changed my opinion. The fact is, if you read the documents, you get a more complex narrative of American history. And you, if your job of historian is to understand, it gives you that understanding. These people aren't interested in understanding. They're interested in proselytizing. They're interested in uh, going out and persuading activism, this is historical activism, or I should say political activism disguised as history. So I want to talk about a book that came out in January that does its exact thing. And it's edited by the great plagiarizer Kevin Cruz. And I say great plagiarizer because he's literally been caught plagiarizing. Princeton, where he works, did a review and found that they weren't going to take any action and he issued a statement. Now, this man went went radio silent on Twitter for months because he was getting just blasted. As soon as Princeton released their findings, well, well Cruz, he's back on Twitter running his mouth again because it thinks that he thinks that Princeton exonerated him, which they really didn't. He was a plagiarizer. He is a plagiarizer. He's plagiarized two books. Uh, Phil Magnus has done a tremendous service in pointing out all the areas that Kevin Cruz plagiarized in his books. And then, I mean, this is the same thing with Doris Kearns Goodwin. All, you know, historians fawn over the popular historian Doris Kearns Goodwin because she has the right perspective on things. Uh, she's, not a, she's not an academic historian. She's a popular historian, but because she has the right perspective, that popular history is okay. You see. Uh, but uh, Magnus has pointed out how much Cruz plays. So how much can you believe Kevin Cruz? This really comes down to it. How much can you believe this guy? when he's been caught plagiarizing, which, according to the Code of Conduct of Princeton, by the way, and I've done a podcast on this, would get him expelled. And he's been in favor of that. And pointing out, you know, when Republicans or conservative plagiarize, all oh, these people can't be listened to. What about you, Cruz? So we've got this book that's actually pretty popular. Uh, still, it came out in January, so, uh, you know, five months ago. But it's still selling you know, okay at Amazon. It's still in the in the thousands rank, not the 10,000s or you know, 20,000s, 30,000s. It's still in the thousands, which is actually fairly decent for a non, uh, non-fiction book, um, a, his, a book of history. Um, it's, that's pretty good, a collection of essays at that. And why is it so popular? Well, because it supports what all these leftist nincompoots think. 
it gives them a good feeling. Well, I'm right about this. And you go through and you look at the introduction to the book, and the entire introduction is an attack on Trump and conservatives and Republicans and a boogeyman. They're creating a straw man. Here's all these people that think these things, and we're going to use this book to tear that all down. What I found fascinating about this is that the New York Times Book Review wrote an essay on it in January. And this thing for a time was out of stock everywhere. It got, it got pretty hot for a little while. And you couldn't really find it. This is, an, this is an opinion piece by Carlos Lozada at the New York Times. And I found this fascinating because he actually asked this question. Now, he used to work at the Washington Post. Now he works at the New York Times. And... Um, he points out that this book really is a political treatise. That's what it is. The title of the book is Myth America. Historians take on the biggest legends and lies about our past. Now notice what happened there. Legends and lies. That phrase, of course, has been used on Fox News and their, their uh, series on the war, Legends and Lies. So this entire book goes after this Fox News Donald Trump boogeyman. They actually say it in the introduction. And Lozada points it out. He says, wait a second here. Um, he, he, Of course, he agrees with the book, but he says, wait a second. I'm going to read this particular part. Uh, is where he gets into that. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's a pretty long essay. But I'm going to read a, sections of it. He says, the collaboration raises worthy arguments about the use of history in the nation's political discourse, foremost among them that the term revisionist history should not be a slur. Well, I actually agree with that. You see, because uh, anyone that says, well, wait a second here, the righteous cause myth is just that, a myth. You're a revisionist. You're a lost cause revisionist. You're a revisionist. Well, for a long time, uh, you know, this perspective on Lee, a balanced perspective on Lee or on the war itself, that was the standard interpretation. So the revisionists came around and changed that, right? They made the lost cause, uh, the lost cause myth a pejorative, and they made the righteous cause myth the standard interpretation. So it Cruz and the dopes that wrote this book, and I mean, look, you've got some names in here like Karen Cox, who hasn't found a Confederate monument she can't distort. And Kevin Cruz, who hasn't found a book that he can't plagiarize to give his work. You've got these people who uh, firmly believe that um, they, they're on the right side of all of this. That their perspective, their, their position, their opinion, their interpretation is infallible, irrefutable which is simply not true. All history is refutable. All, all interpretations of history are refutable because you always have at least two sides to every story. I go back and people talk about the lost cause. Let's just talk about that for you. There's, this is in the book, right? I mean, you've got the Confederate monument issue in this book. You've got the founding fathers in the book. Uh, Professor Amar uh, uh, talks about that. Uh, in the book, who is a you know constitutional scholar, quote unquote, um, you've got that here. Uh, but um, I, look, the Confederate stuff is there, and and when you go back and you and you talk about this 
interpretation and what's happened over time and revision. I mean, they simply just didn't want uh, the lost cause position to be to what they considered to be dominant. Right? I mean, that's it. Uh, so they revised what they thought was, in their mind, a revision of the reality of it. But when you go back to Clement Vallandigham, was what I was going to say. When you go back to Clement Vallandigham in 1861, he gives his speech against Abraham Lincoln. That's essentially what people would call the lost cause myth. Here is a northern Democrat laying out what he says the war is really about. It's not a southerner saying this. It's a northerner. It's Clement Vallandigham of Ohio. Now, you could say, well, that guy was you know, pro-Confederacy. Well, not really. I mean, the Confederacy didn't even want him when he was booted out of the United States. So you see, we have these interpretations going back to even to the war itself. People were talking about what the war meant, what secession meant, what all these things meant. And when historians say, well, we have truths about this. No, we just have interpretations. We have interpretations. Now, you could say there are some historical truths. Uh, but uh, a lot of times history is built on interpretation. So all these people are doing is interpreting what they think is the correct view of the history that they're reading. And look at the quote that Cruz uses. Quote, all good historical work is at heart revisionist in that it uses new findings from the archives, which in many cases is not going to happen with this new findings from the archives. There aren't really any new findings from the archives uh, in, the, in, say, the war period. Every now and then you come across something. But there aren't really that many new findings. One new finding that I would say that you can that you have is this uh, book by Kevin Johnson that's going to talk about Lincoln. And there's a chapter in it that Lincoln sold slaves. So there is this document that shows that his wife's estate, which included slaves, was sold off by the Lincolns. Not freed. The slaves weren't freed. They weren't emancipated because other family members did that. No, no, no. Lincoln sold the slaves. So he engaged in slave trading, right? which should mean that nobody should ever pay attention to Abraham Lincoln again. Because if we follow the righteous cause mythologists and the Wokies in this, anyone who has that stain can never be trusted again and celebrated again. I mean, that's the lowest of the low is slave trading. So Lincoln should never be. But he said that, but the other part of this is, is fascinating and it's, it's revealing. New findings from the archives or new perspectives from historians to improve, to perfect, and yes, to revise our understanding of the past. New perspectives from historians. So it uses new findings from the archives. These people don't do that. They don't have any new findings from the archives. The second part is what they have. New perspectives from historians to improve, to perfect, and yes, to revise but to improve and to perfect. To improve and perfect. Those are subjective terms. They're not objective. They're not improving or perfecting our understanding of the past. No, no. They haven't done any of that. Karen Cox's stupidity on Confederate monuments hasn't improved, perfect, or it's revised. It's revised and it's 
put out this opinion on these things, but it hasn't improved or perfected anything. Kevin Levine's stupid history of black Confederates hasn't improved or perfected anything. Nothing. Because again, it's based on the straw man that people. I mean, look, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna uh, say that there aren't people that run around and say that you know there were, there were hundreds of thousands of black Confederates running around out there, and they were all you know marching off in regiments. You get this stuff. And there have been people that have said those things. So Levine writes an entire book on this, which, as I've reviewed on this show, is really awful because he does a horrible job in most of it. But the fact is, they create these straw men, these boogeymen, and this is Trump, right? If you read the introduction to the book, if you read the introduction of the book, it's all about Republicans, Donald Trump, uh, Regnery. I mean, they don't mention Regnery by name, but you know, conservative presses that are going out and pushing myths. These are myths, and we got to get rid of these myths. So this is. Um, this is fascinating because what this book basically is, is a political activist book disguised as history. All these people are activists, all of them. Cruz is an activist. Karen Cox is an activist. Amar is an activist. They're all activists. They all have high profiles on social media or on the media in general. Not all, but many of them do. Jill Lepore. These are all activists. And so they collected, as the book's an all-star all cast, or I think of what, what the term is used by the publisher. They collected a bunch of activists to write a history, a popular history at that, uh, that does X, Y, or Z. So one thing he says that's it's amazing. Let me go back and read another part of it. He says, when exploring earlier arguments about America's unique nature, Bell touches on John Winthrop's 17th century sermon, A Model of Christian Charity in which the future governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony declared that the Puritan community would be as a city on a hill, a line that President Ronald Reagan expanded centuries later into a shining city upon a hill. The reference is obligatory in any discussion of American exceptionalism, though Bell minimizes the relevance of the lay sermon to the exceptionalism debates, both because the text breathed with agonized doubt about whether the colonists could meet the challenge, because the sermon remained virtually unknown until the 19th century. But you see, and, and look, I, I understand um, that it really wasn't used that often outside of New England. And it wasn't just about the sermon itself. We, so we, we elevate some of these documents. But it's also about culture. And if you read David Hackett Fisher, somebody that wasn't in this book, but he's a real all-star historian. When you read David Hackett Fisher and his discussion of culture, that trumps... I mean, look, the, the, the sermon reflected the culture of Puritan New England. It's important to get out of this. The sermon reflected the culture of Puritan New England. He says, It's an intriguing assumption, at least to this non-historian, that the initial obscurity of a speech would render it irrelevant, no matter how significant it became to later generations. So he signs this... Uh, intriguing assumption that even if it's obscure, that it should be irrelevant. So, well, because nobody paid attention to this thing, that's irrelevant. It's not really, because people do talk about it. And it reflected culture, which is what these political activists don't get. 
He says, it is the same attitude that Akil Reed, Amar, a law professor at Yale and the author of a chapter on myths surrounding the Constitution, takes for his Federalist Number 10, James Madison essay, foreshadowed much of post-Civil War American history, Amar writes, in part for its arguments that the federal government would protect minority rights more effectively than the states. But in 1787-1788, almost no one paid attention to Madison's masterpiece. Well, that is a true statement. I mean, Amar is correct about this that uh, the Federalist essays weren't really paid much attention to. But um, when, you, when you look at what uh, Lozada says next, it's, I find this fascinating. This is Lozada throwing in his, his opinion. He says, unlike other Federalist essays that resonated widely during the debates over constitutional ratification, Amara writes number 10, failed to make a deep impression in American coffee houses and taverns where patrons read aloud and discussed both local and out-of-town newspapers. Alas, Mr. Madison, your piece was not trending, so we're taking it off history's homepage. But the Federalists themselves were not really much discussed. In fact, what was discussed was James Wilson's State House Yard speech, George Mason's objections to the Constitution. Those are the things that were really discussed, not the Federalists. The only reason we focus on the Federalist now is because of the status of the people that wrote in it, that produced it. To his credit, Amara is consistent in privileging immediate popular reactions to his historical assessments. He criticizes the argument of Charles Beer's 1913 book, An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution, that the Constitution was an anti-democratic document. If the document was truly anti-democratic, why did the people vote for it, Amara asks. Why did tens of thousands of ordinary working men enthusiastically join massive pro-constitutional rallies in Philadelphia and Manhattan? Why did they do that? Well, you see, this is a Mars politics coming out. Beard was actually correct in that book. And even Forrest MacDonald, who hit a home run, I mean, that was his claim to fame. He took down Beard in one of his first books. He wrote an introduction to another edition of Beard's book where he said, uh, Beard is right about a lot of things, essentially. So uh, Lozada says, even just in the aftermath of the 2020 election, the capital assault of January 6th, however, it seems clear that people in a free society can be rallied to democratic and anti-democratic causes with great enthusiasm if they come to believe such causes are righteous. I mean, this is an interesting, uh, interesting position. He's saying, well, I mean, just because people rallied around it doesn't mean that it's democratic. Doesn't mean that it's a democratic thing. We also know that there was a lot of violence in this particular situation. You had constitutional rallies in Philadelphia, Manhattan. You also had people assaulting people who were against it. Is that democratic? You know, take this constitution and like it or we're going to beat you up. In Pennsylvania, I don't know if Amar brings this up in the book, but just to get a quorum, they were going out and finding the opponents and dragging them to their, literally dragging them to their seats so they had a quorum to vote because these people weren't going to show up. Is that democratic? The opposition wasn't allowed to publish their speeches in the Pennsylvania newspapers. Is that democratic? Hmm? I mean, this is a real question. You go back and you look at the debates, go look at Elliot's debates, and you've got some of these things in there. Uh, the speeches against the Constitution in Philadelphia in particular are not as many because they weren't recorded, really. <laughs> Is that democratic? These are real questions. Other contributors to Myth America are more willing to squint at the first impressions of the past. 
the chapter minimizing the transformational impact of the Reagan presidency. Zelizer laments how the trope that the Reagan revolution remade American politics has remained central to the national discourse, even though it has been more of a political talking point than a description of reality. Reminder, calling them tropes or talking points is an effective shorthand way to dismiss opposing views. When Zelizer looks back on a collection of historians' essays published in 1989, just months after Reagan left office, and which argued that Reagan's 1980 victory was the end of the New Deal era, he does not hesitate to pass judgment on his professional colleagues. Even a group of historians was swept up by the moment, he writes. Here, proximity to an earlier historical era renders observers susceptible to transient passions, not possessions of superior insights. If so, perhaps an essay collection of American myths that is published shortly after the Trump presidency also risks being swept up by its own moment. Incidentally, that 1989 book, edited by the historians Steve Frazier and Gary Gersel, entitled The Rise and Fall of the New Deal Order, shares one contributor with Myth America, Michael Kazin. Take a bow. So, I mean, look, this is funny because he's pointing out these people are swept up by Trump arrangement syndrome, essentially, and they're writing this book based on the fact that they don't like what other historians are saying. And so we're going to write a book that has the truth the truth, because we are other historians and this is the truth. This is how stupid all this stuff really is. The truth. He says this, the editors note the existence of some bipartisan myths that transcend party or ideology, but overwhelmingly, the myths covered in Myth America originate or live on the right. An analysis that spans 20 chapters, more than 300 pages, and centuries of American history and public discourse, this emphasis is striking. Do left-wing activists and politicians in the United States never construct and propagate their own self-affirming versions of American story? If such liberal innocence is real, let's hear more about it. If not, it might require its own debunking. I love that. It's in the middle of the essay. But this is what he says. Look, I mean, are you sure you, you don't have your own biases and your own myths that you're propagating here? This is a problem. So... I find it fascinating. Of course, I've got this class at McClanahan Academy, 10 Myths of American History, where I take down some myths. I mean, this term myths, there are myths of American history, and essentially that's interpretation. You get these different myths, and so I have my own interpretation of things. That's why you buy classes at McClanahan Academy. It's why you listen to this podcast. You're getting my interpretation of things. But I will tell you, uh, I'm open about my biases. These people are not. They're trying to do this. That's objective. This is objective. It's not. Never is. I've talked about that on this show before. Objective history is that noble dream. As there's a book, and there's a book written about it. It's by Novik, that noble dream. There's no objective history. There's only interpretations. And so when you publish a book where you say, we're going to tell you the truth. And man, I go back to that to that phrase that they used in the introduction, or new perspectives from historians to improve, to perfect, and yes, revise our understanding of the past. And he even says, I I love this, this revisionist impulse at times makes the myth's framework feel somewhat forced, an excuse to cover topics of interest to the authors. Right. So, I mean, yeah. This is what historians are going to do. I mean, even in my 10 myths class, I pick things that you can go out and find in your 
your history, your history classes at your college or university that are going to be taught that I believe are myths, that there's always another side to it. So a myth is not necessarily a, a lie. A myth could be a story, and that story could have another side to it. We often see this. So this is what I found fascinating about this particular essay at the New York Times. Again, I subscribe so you don't have to. Carlos Lozada. It was published in January, but and this book came out in January. So I wouldn't recommend buying the book unless you just want to laugh a lot. Uh, I mean, it's, it's really bad. But I thought this essay was a nice discussion of it in a way that was more accessible than me just going through the book itself. Uh, so we're going to talk more about myths again, wrap up with some myths tomorrow on some things, or at least perspective, which I find fascinating with uh, the current election cycle coming up. But I'll see you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.